Welcome all. Uh, today is the end of the month. Wednesday, August 31. End of summer, fast approaching. I couldn't resist with that song, Jackson Brown running on empty. I don't know if that's an ode to Jennifer Grant and Secretary, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm or what, but thought we'd have some fun with it. We've got a tremendous room in store today. Dr. Anas Alhaji, no stranger to these rooms. He's given us so much of his wisdom this year. It's my pleasure to have gotten to know him a little bit. We had him in a room, many rooms, months over the last few months. And his uh, outlook, his prescient um, advice was really, really on, on, on point. He really needs a little introduction. Um, he's world-renowned as one being one of the leading experts on uh, energy markets, prolific um, publisher, been an advisor to so many institutions. Um, I don't have time to go through all his citations and accomplishments. It's just a real privilege to have him here with us today. And what I like about Anas, um, he's not one of these ivory tower guys. He's one of the few uh, out there who has the experience of, um, combines experience of being in academia, in the private sector, in the government, and in the interface between OPEC, the Middle East, and North America. So I think he alone is one of the best um, perches on which to um, speak on things energy. So, Anas, um, welcome. Good to see you as always. Um, I know uh, people are eagerly waiting to hear uh, your remarks. I see we had quite a extraordinarily large group of people pre-registered for this uh, space. Got some smart cookies in the room here. Doomberg immediately to uh, your right. I see KFAB is down there. Mark Newman, we had a great space yesterday on, um, on anti-ESG. So really looking forward to the next uh, hour, hour and a half. So welcome, Anas. How are you, my friend? Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. It's great. So, Anas, um, I don't know. There's so much to talk about. The last time we had a space a few months back, and you really uh, nailed it. And um, against the uh, steady cheerleading and excitement, of the energy bulls. And I, I consider myself an energy bull, long-term energy bull, very optimistic about the long-term outlook for the industry, given the tremendous underinvestment we've had in recent years. But you alone, this was back, I want to say it was June or something like that. And you warned, you warned. And I think the price of oil was, I don't know, 120, 125, something like that. Uh, WTI. And you called it. Um, you predicted, you predicted that uh, OPEC would defend a $90 price. And most were kind of like scoffing at you, like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no way it's going to happen. We're going to get to 90. But in any event, uh, that is a, um, that's a tough act to follow. You've said, expect, you set the bar extremely high. So um, I don't know where you want to go, uh, but I just, I, you know, when you speak about oil, I listen. So Anas, I'm going to yield the floor to yourself and, Run with it, and uh, we'll get into a nice dialogue, and then we'll open it up to uh, questions from the audience. So take it away, Anas. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the fact is, I am uh, uh, bullish on oil, and I'm still bullish. 
we are just going through a transition period. And the problem we had through this transition period is that certain people keep pushing for uh, prices during this transition. And that is uh, really kind of harmful for a lot of people. Uh, so it was very clear that uh, prices are not going to go any higher during this transition. But I am still bullish on oil in the medium term and the long term. And as I stated in your space and other spaces, that I am more even more bullish on natural gas in medium long term than oil. Uh, what we have in the oil market uh, uh, basically is, is different narratives and uh, sifting through those narratives and sifting through the data uh, is really tough. And just to give you an idea, if you look at the various, uh, as you know, Bloom, uh, Bloomberg and others, they ask uh, analysts every week uh, what they think about oil prices, etc. And Waiters does that too. And if you go through that, you find out that the results over the years are almost 50-50, which means that if you flip a coin, you will be just like as good as any other analyst. Uh, but uh, And the other thing is, when you have a trend and you ride that trend, uh, even Bozo uh, makes money. Uh, so this is not the big deal. You get to compare yourself to those who, uh, okay, you made 200%. Well, others made 800%. So yes, you can make money when the trend is your friend. Uh, today, we have an issue because uh, we have a committee within OPEC Plus uh, called the technical, the Joint Technical Committee, the JTC, and they met today and they issued a report and the media talked about it, etc. And the report basically talks about a surplus in the market. And then we've seen some colleagues and others commenting on it, saying that this surplus is based on the target production, not the actual uh, production. Well, this this. This has been the case for a long time. Since the GTC was established, that's been going on. Why today all of a sudden is, is a concern for everyone? Uh, and it wasn't a concern before. Uh, the, the fact is the same tables they've been issuing every month since the, GT, the, the GTC was established. And the, the idea here is very simple. Uh, when it the work of the GTC and the emphasis on the monthly meetings, etc., uh, were all around cutting production. Prices were very low, and therefore, whatever the commitment was, it worked. So the GTC work and those tables were fine as long as oil prices were low, and everyone is cutting production. Now we have exactly the opposite story. And probably that work is not suitable anymore. And that's why everyone is talking about it today. So the issue here is when we talk about the, uh, uh, the GTC today, they are talking about scenarios. They always talked about scenarios. They never talked about actual production. The fact is they cannot even talk about actual production. Why? This leads us to a point that we mentioned before, and I'm going to mention it quickly here. That's why we have a failure with forecasts and why I'm very bullish on oil and gas in the future, because all those outlooks from the IEA, OPEC, and others are based on the fact that the analysts 
take what the governments are saying as is. They cannot discuss the governments. They cannot tell them your plan is wrong or they cannot tell them it needs to be modified or it cannot be applied. They cannot tell them that. And therefore, the, uh, the JTC is not going to talk about actual production. They are going to talk about what they agreed on. So the, to conclude this point that the JTC uh, reports were always scenarios. They were not about actual production. And the reason why everyone is talking about it today, because all of that worked during production cuts and low prices. Now it's not working the other, uh, the other way. And the fact is, the, uh, and if you go through uh, the timeline, I think there was a tweet about two months ago uh, where uh, um, I kind of uh, mocked the, the, the OPEC forecast by saying that the market is tighter than what OPEC is talking about. And until today, the market is tighter than what the JTC is talking about. But what the JTC was saying is just kind of uh, boundaries for uh, OPEC policymakers to know what's going on. Back to you. That's terrific, Anas. So let's talk a little bit about Russia. Last March, when many were predicting the price of oil was going to go down 200 or whatever, you predicted that the Russian oil would continue to flow and it would find its way into markets. That happened. So what do you see right now with respect to Russian oil? I saw something the other day suggesting it was actually, production was actually rolling over. I don't know. But what do you see more broadly with respect to Russian oil production going forward? And, sure. do, you th- and do you think EU sanctions designed to stop Russian oil flow uh, by year-end is planned? That's actually going to happen, or is that just open-mouth operations, as I call it? A uh, couple of points here. Uh, the reason why I said this in March, because I spent a great, great deal of time doing field work. Uh, and many of you uh, basically heard me saying this before. So I'm kind of like, I feel I'm repeating myself over and over when I say that I've done the field work. The field work on sanctions and smuggling is, is one of the most fascinating things you can study in life. That's just amazing. Uh, and and you can and the reason one of the reasons why you think about uh, loading uh, oil into a one million uh, barrel uh, tanker or literally carrying it on a donkey, and so you can see where <laughs> the difference between the two and why it is uh, exciting. Uh, some of them basically on motorcycles and others, uh, but the issue here is. Uh, the Russian production started decreasing. So it is decreasing, but it's not decreasing in millions or it's just decreasing small amounts, probably 100, 150,000 uh, every couple of months. Uh, they cannot maintain current production. This is a fact. But the decline, the big decline because of sanctions, uh, this is just hype. Sanctions never worked and sanctions uh, always increases the price for the smugglers and the middlemen. And therefore, there is incentive always to uh, uh, smuggle uh, this oil. There is a massive invest, massive incentive to India and uh, China. We've seen the Minister of Foreign Affairs in India basically talking about this. Uh, and by the way, I like this guy uh, uh, because he, he kind of is different from the others where he just frank about those issues, uh, where he said, look, you know, this is heaven for us. 
uh, we are getting uh, oil at $70 while oil is 110 Or you, Are you kidding me? I'm going to take it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to store it. Uh, I'm going to stockpile. Uh, so it, it is good for India. It's good for China. It's good for the other OPEC members, including the Arab Gulf countries that are importing the Russian oil. Everyone is benefiting from it. So there will be a decline, but the decline is, is not that uh, large. By the end of the year, supposedly the EU sanctions are going to kick in. We got to wait and see whether they are going to extend that or not. But the irony here, uh, it really uh, doesn't matter. And why it doesn't matter? There are several reasons for that I will mention too. All of a sudden now, China is re-exporting LNG to Europe. Where that LNG is coming from? Uh, we've seen India sending crude oil and products to the United States. And we found out later it, was, it, it came from Russian crude or it is Russian crude. So Russian crude is going to find its way to Europe. And I think some governments will turn the blind eye by design to avoid a crisis or disaster. Uh, the, whether we are talking about mixing the crude or getting products at a higher price from India or China or other places, that oil is going to arrive and, and reach uh, uh, European shores no matter what. Uh, the, uh, the other point related to that is uh, three countries were exempt from the sanctions by the end of December, and those are in the heart of Europe, and uh, they are landlocked. And they receive the oil from Russia via pipelines. And some European politicians already expressed concerns that the Russians will increase the flow in those pipelines where those three countries will start exporting the Russian oil to the neighboring countries. So we are going to see all kinds of things. And I can tell you from experience when we talk about smuggling, uh, nothing is going to stop smugglers as long as there is a dollar to be made. Back to you. Yeah, it's uh, the, the old line from... Uh... Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's colleague. You know, you show me incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Uh, let's move. We're going in rapid uh, fashion here from one to one subject to the next. And I'm sure we'll backfill on some of these subjects, but I just kind of want to lay, set the landscape here. And I'll have a few more questions for you. And then I think Doomberg's probably got a couple of questions he may want to ask you about uh, the impact of the drought and agriculture and all that sort of stuff and ESG. But let's move on now to... Um, the uh, the impact of the withdrawal from the SPR and what effect uh, is that having on the market? And it seems to me it's pretty transparent. It, it's, it's remarkable. Your inventories are flat despite uh, huge releases from the SPR. This is not going to go on for that much longer. So just sum up for us. Give us sort of the, the summary version of the, what's mo no, most noteworthy about the impact of the SPR withdrawal on the overall energy market. Sure. Great question. Uh, I just, uh, if you allow me, I would like to uh, tell the audience that there are problems with Twitter worldwide, especially if you are hearing clicks or uh, you are not hearing clearly. It is not from us. Uh, it's not from Georgia's side uh, or Doomberg, basically. There are problems, especially on regional basis. Uh, so probably the best way if you are experiencing difficulties is to get out of the room and come back. Uh, otherwise, if the problem uh, remains, then it is a Twitter problem. Uh, the other issue is if we are cut off for some reason, we will be back. Um, when we talk about the SPR, uh, people must understand the following points about the SPR. Uh, 
first of all, there is an optimal level to the SPR that is beneficial to the country in terms of economics and politics if you, if you believe in it. And why I say if you believe in it? Because the SPR at the end is a subsidy to the oil industry. And one of the things that kind of very hard to understand is why the Democrats and environmentalists are not raising this issue. They always talk about the subsidies to the fossil fuel, but they ignore the SPR subsidy. It is and uh, we, uh, uh, it's, it's very hard to understand why they are not raising this issue. One explanation is it gives the Democrats uh, a tool to control the oil industry, and we already seen it. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, yes, various Republican and Democrat presidents used it, but there were certain use by the Democrats, uh, and it is very clear that they like it. Uh, and the Republicans were calling for the end of the SPR. They were calling for the end of the Department of Energy. Uh, but the Democrats insisted, no, we need them. Uh, so probably it's a method for control, and that's why they like it. The first issue with, and, and this been written long ago and no long ago, that the impact of the SPR releases are very limited simply because the amounts were very small. But it was very clear, if we go big, the impact is big. It never happened until this year. We got uh, 180 million uh, barrels planned to be released. We've seen most of it being released. And the impact of it is like this. It did prevent oil prices from going above 140, which means that those the bulls basically who were expecting it to go up, uh, for I'm talking about the prices to go up, they had a case. But once the SPR was used, there was no case after that. So at first, it prevented prices from going up. And then with the increase in supplies from OPEC and uh, all kinds of problems with the uh, lockdowns in China and other places, it was very clear that the SPR is going to lower prices and started lowering uh, prices. And one of the issues here is that the impact of the SPR is cumulative on prices. The other issue here, if we continue releasing oil from the SPR, it was very clear even 20 years ago from simulation models that we will see a substitution between the SPR and commercial stocks. And we've been seeing this. So there is a certain range. Once we reach that range, we'll see that substitution, which means that if the SPR declines below a certain limit, then we see that substitution and it's already uh, happening. Uh, the confusion right now is about the refill of the SPR. Uh, people are saying, okay, they are going to refill the whole thing. No, they are not going to refill the whole thing. They are going to re they will, we are going to see a partial refill. But if you read the language, you, all you need or you get to do is just go back to the original press releases and read the language. That's fine print. Read the fine print. The fine print basically is saying when demand decreases, and when prices decline. And based on various evidence, uh, to me, 
I think that price, the, the threshold is $53, which means that we need prices to decline to 53 or below until we see the government coming back and refilling 60 to 90 million, no more. The fact is, we do not need 700 million or anything near 600 million barrels in the SPR. Uh, and the reason is the share revolution. We added 8 million barrels a day in 10 years between 2010 and, two, uh, and 2019. 8 million. That did not exist before. And the SPR, the problem with the SPR is it's, it's a mix of sour and light. But as you all know, that the shale is light sweet. And we don't need that much light sweet crude uh, in the SPR. So the objective here is to lower the SPR on one side and change the quality of the SPR and get more sour crude into it because that's what we import. It was designed to replace imports. And most of the imports now are sour. And most of it basically is medium and heavy. So we are going to see a chain once they refill, when the price is low, uh, they are going to refill, uh, partial refill. The impact on prices at that time depends on several factors. It's not like a clear cut, like when it was released in massive quantity. And the impact basically depends on several factors. One of them is if the prices are declining and they continue de to decline, the impact is different from stable prices. So if you have prices in the 50s and the government start buying, that's different from prices going from 70 to 60 to 50 to 40. The impact is completely different, which means that it most likely will create a floor somewhere when the prices are declining. If the prices are stable, yes, it is bullish, but the amount is small for a short period, and that's it. And the final comment on the SPR is the Secretary of Energy statement about um, trying to lock up the purchases at a fixed price in the future and the impact of that, that does not make sense, uh, as I mentioned before, in economics, does not make sense in finance, does not make sense in politics. And her comment that this is going to benefit you as producers is a complete nonsense, because if you are going to fill it with sour, crude, mostly medium, or medium sweet. If they are going to get medium sweet, uh, they are going to import that. U.S. producers are not going to benefit from it. Back to you. Thanks, Anas. That's great. I'm going to um, ask you one more question, and then I want to turn it over to Doomberg, who's forgotten more about energy than I'll ever know. Um, let's speak about China a little bit. Um, how do you see their role um, in energy markets, particularly in the oil market? Sure. Um, China literally changed the oil market structure completely the way we know it. The way we taught our students for 20 years, the way we taught them the oil market and energy markets, uh, it's all right now needs to be adjusted. I'm not going to say obsolete, but at least the basics are still there. But most of the knowledge we, we, we taught them basically uh, need changed and we need to change the curriculum and whatever we are teaching them because of the role of China. Historically, we always talked about uh, the market. The oil market is not competitive and there is no way the oil market is competitive. It is controlled 
by uh, uh, the larger producers on one side. We call that oligopoly in economics. And uh, on the other side, governments have tremendous control on that, either through taxes or through regulations. So the market is not competitive. And we always taught it that way. Uh, and when we uh, modeled the oil market, we kind of like emphasize the supply side and its impact uh, of the cost on the marginal cost and the impact on pricing. The problem is China since 2018 changed all of this when it started building massive strategic petroleum reserves and its refiners whether the the uh, Chinese majors or the teapot refineries, they became very active on the world stage, uh, just like activist investors on the boards uh, of various companies. So what we've seen basically starting in 2018, once oil prices exceed certain level, we've seen the Chinese government uh, releasing a lot of oil from the strategic petroleum reserves and literally asking their refiners to be more active. Of course, they can control their refiners uh, through the quota system. Uh, so the Chinese government became a big player as a buyer. That was not the case in the oil market for more than 140 years. Uh, so uh, China came in. We have, uh, for those who studied uh, uh, Econ 101, you remember the word oligopoly. Now we have what we call oligopsony. Oligopsony, when you have few buyers, have market power uh, uh, in the market. So China basically prevented oil prices from reaching 100 in 2021. And their idea was simple. Uh, since the demand is seasonal and therefore prices are seasonal, I'm going to release the crude in uh, in the third quarter and the fourth quarter, when the demand is very high, then in the first quarter of the new year, uh, uh, the demand declines, prices decline, I'm going to refill. Well, <laughs> they, they planned on that, and then Putin goes to Ukraine, and prices go through the roof in the first quarter. So they got stuck. But later, they got lucky because of the sanctions. So this is one of the ironies of the Western sanctions that they benefited the China greatly because China was really stuck. Uh, the, the SPR was very low. Their commercial inventories were very low and they got stuck. But with the Western sanctions, they were able to, to replenish their SPR and their commercial stocks in a big way. And now they are waiting. So for those who are capitalizing on the idea that the U.S. SPR uh, withdrawals are going to stop toward the end of the year, regardless of the exact date, whether October or after. Well, I have news for you, because China is going to use its SPR. And, and they are going to use it the same way they used it before. They used it in 2018, they used it in 2021, and they used it in 2022. Uh, generally speaking, they don't announce it, but based on the uh, some communication between them and the Biden administration, they announced just once that they are releasing oil from the SPR. But we see the data and we see the destocking uh, taking place. So I think once uh, uh, oil prices uh, start going up again, or once the U.S. ends the SPR withdrawal, 
they are going to uh, start releasing uh, releasing oil. So that's the, the biggest role. Uh, but now, and we will talk about this in details later on, with the drought, there is a, a more impact on energy markets. And I will leave that until we get to that part of the discussion. Back to you. Thanks, Anas. That's terrific. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to my friend Doomberg, who, again, is uh, he's a must-follow. And for those of you that don't uh, subscribe to his Substack, he's absolutely terrific. He's been so helpful <clears throat> to all of us about markets. So Doomberg, welcome. Uh, the floor is yours, Doomberg. Thank you, George and uh, Dr. Anas. Um, great hearing you again. I have a, a couple of questions for you. First one is a relatively simple one. Maybe you could clear up a bit of an argument that I'm observing on Fintwit, you know, this report about Russia reselling um, LNG, uh, sorry, uh, China reselling Russian LNG to Europe. Um, there's some dispute uh, from some prominent European um, sort of macro accounts about whether this is even plausible. Um, how real is that report? What are the mechanics of it? Are they just sort of rerouting ships? Uh, are they offloading and reloading? What, what, what's the sort of nitty gritty from the ground on, on whether this is happening and the mechanics of it? Uh, no, basically, this is uh, based on, of course, the the information is still fresh. Um, what we've seen before, basically, it's it's mostly diversion, diversion of ships uh, or tankers, and for the Chinese, uh, the reason why they are doing this because uh, if they are buying this on contract, and there is no clause uh, in the contract that prevent a resale, uh, they can make a lot of money because the difference between the contract price and the uh, uh, spot price is like, what, $50 or something like this. Uh, so they can make a lot of money. And if they if they bought it on the spot uh, historically from various places when uh, the, the price was low or they were kind of opportunistic buying, they are making money too. Uh, so for them, it's really pure commerce uh, in this case. But they cannot, the idea that they are going to get the gas and uh, 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 literally take it, convert it to, to gas, and then convert it back to, no. Uh, this is just diversion, diversion of ships. Uh, so the bottom line is technically it's, it's not feasible to, uh, to unload and then reload. Yes, that's that was my view as well. But I'm just interesting that you know, literally, just a uh, a bit of paperwork and you circumvent the sanctions. And it's um, as you say, um, you know, we, this this energy was always going to find its way to the market, and the sanctions only increase the value uh, accrued to the smugglers, which is sort of which is what always happens. This is a follow-up question, George. Uh, before we head over to start talking maybe about the drought, uh, especially in China, but also in Europe, um, Luke Roman was out with a very provocative uh, report on Friday about potential uh, uh, use of gold for partial settlement for um, uh, transacting in Russian oil and perhaps that Putin would be giving a um, sort of a, a higher price for the, the partial payment in, uh, in gold than the current sort of LBMA price that you see in London or, or, or in New York. Um, is there any whispers in the Middle East about um, the value of gold versus uh, the euro or the dollar in, in transacting of oil or is this just sort of whispers of conspiracies of uh, of analysts over here in the US? Generally speaking, if you look at the major oil producers in the Middle East, by the way, uh, Dunberg, your, your your voice is cutting off. So this is the what I warned about earlier about uh, Twitter problems. In, in yeah, regions. okay. Yeah. Um, 
if you look at the currencies of the GCC, for, for example, that Gulf uh, Cooperation Council, uh, all their currencies except Kuwait is back to the dollar. Uh, so, in a sense, uh, uh, there is not much room there. Uh, Kuwait's currency is back to a basket of currencies, and the dollar constitute most of it. So they don't have that much uh, uh, room. And uh, if you go back to the statement of the Saudi energy minister, the one we, you and I talked about, uh, what, about a week ago, if you recall, uh, and uh, when he mentioned that, you know, they talked about the possibility of cutting production, uh, etc. And I mentioned that, look at the timing, it's, yeah. it is really a message to Jackson Hole. Um, and uh, higher dollar is the best thing for the Saudis and the other Gulf countries. It's better than anything else. And the reason why, because most of their imports is coming from other countries, mostly China and uh, other Asian countries plus Europe. And uh, higher dollar basically increases the purchasing power of every barrel of oil exported. It's better than any other currency or other go or gold or anything else. Back to you. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. George, um, you want to pivot to drought? Yeah, let's go to drought. Well, before we do that, uh, one question I might want to throw in there. So, Anas, um, back in June when, you know, oil was considerably higher, you explained against the universal bullishness that, you know, potential economic slowdown whereby, you know, a few hundred thousand barrels of demand uh, destruction occurs could uh, sufficiently disturb the balance to drive prices down. And again, you thought that $90 would be defended. Um, just a reminder for everyone in the in the, in the audience, the uh, it's, 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 you know, oil, oil, oil demand is relatively price inelastic. The huge swings and roundabouts historically usually occur as a result of changes in supply, not changes in demand. It's only been three years in the last 50, if I'm not mistaken, where oil demand has actually gone down. So sort of marking to market or updating your view on us, uh, where you warned the price was over 120, it could go lower. And okay, we're around 90, give or take now. Um, what are your updated thoughts as to the supply-demand balance and has demand held up better or worse than you thought it would? And what sort of uh, updated uh, uh, predictions would you offer on the oil market right now? Uh, the, the fact is um, this 90 threshold, uh, I think, is going to be defended even uh, stronger. Uh, I'm saying this now stronger than what I thought in June when I wrote that tweet. Uh, and OPEC uh, and OPEC Plus uh, is more flexible than ever. And the determination of them to keep all the gains they gained in the last four or five years in cooperating with each other, uh, their determination is stronger than ever. Uh, they all realize the benefits of this cooperation and they will continue that. And we already know that uh, the Biden administration, uh, looking at it from an old point of view, uh, was a weak government. And the European governments are extremely weak, especially given what we see in Russia and Ukraine and other places. So why not take advantage of this position right now uh, and, and, in a sense, go for the uh, gold, 
if that's the right expression. Uh, the other issue here is, and, and this is a striking point if you really think about it from ESG and environmental point of view. Um, if they really believe that this is the last bullish market uh, in history, and that's it, uh, because of ESG and because of all the policies and the IEA and everything else, then if, if that's the case, then go for it. Just go get as much as you can because this is the last bull market you will ever see in your life, and that's it. So in a sense, all of a sudden, the ESG policies are pushing them to get higher price, although it's not good for them in the long run. Back to you. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um... Dr. Anand, and um, one that we've grappled with a lot here internally, um, you know, what does the final bull market for oil and gas look like? And there are scenarios where, uh, given the price, you know, the inelasticity of, uh, of the price with respect to demand, that um, they can charge whatever they want, effectively, um, if they are truly convinced that this is the last bull run for oil and gas, although I, I suspect that um, many of them aren't. Um, uh, so let's pivot to uh, drought, um, drought in China, drought in Europe. Um, I know you have some strong thoughts. Uh, where would you like to start? Well, when we talk about drought and the reason why I really want to focus on this point, because a lot of people, even those who are in the oil industry and the energy industry, do not realize the impact of drought on the energy industry, because many of them think, okay, we have dams and the water is low and therefore the hydropower uh, is uh, uh, lower and we need to compensate for, for that and not everyone has hydropower and therefore it's not a big deal. Well, no, the drought is a very, very big deal. I'm going to explain uh, briefly in a layman term uh, why it is a big deal. First of all, uh, we have the direct effect where no rain, uh, uh, water levels in dams go down hydroelectricity production goes down, and now we need a replacement. Of course, what is the replacement? The most flexible. What is the most flexible? Natural gas. Or increased utilization of coal plants, etc. But it is the fossil fuel. You cannot just increase the utilization of wind because it depends on the wind. So immediately you jump to fossil fuel because of uh, lower hydroelectric. Uh, but the problem gets worse when you cannot or you don't want to depend on Russia for gas. You switch your dependence to Norway and 75% of Norway's electricity production come from hydro. And all of a sudden, Norway does not have enough hydro production. What they are going to do? They are going to resort to their natural gas. And therefore, the natural gas is not going to be available to Europe. And you can see where the impact is and how big it is. And this is only one issue among many. But the other issue is, look at the rivers, uh, look at the uh, Germany and look at China. Because the water level in the rivers is very low, then we cannot transport coal to power plants. We cannot transport petroleum products to reach uh, people and distribution centers and gas stations. And all of a sudden we are low on gasoline and diesel and everything else. And of course, all types of other types of oil. We cannot even transport the inputs into factories. Uh, and that's going to, uh, force some factor, which already happened, uh, is going to force factory closing uh, 
and therefore we end up with lower demand uh, for oil and gas and energy, including electricity. Uh, so there is a negative impact there from the closure. But even when you talk about closing factories, look at the irony here. The irony here is if you look at China, for example, uh, the drought led to closing to the closing of factories that produce solar panels and parts for wind turbines. So all of a sudden, the green energy got hit by the uh, drought. If you think that's a lot uh, of uh, to talk about when it comes to impact of drought on, of uh, uh, energy, think about this. You cannot even get electricity from coal without water. You need to transport it through water, through rivers. You need to wash it. You need to clean it. You need to cool the plant itself with water. Not only that, because of the various environmental regulations, uh, power plants have to have scrubbers, and you cannot have scrubbers without water. And you, that water basically is is the uh, is the result of various environmental regulations. Just think about uh, sulfur and and mercury and others. You need water to get rid of them, uh, or at least to isolate them. Uh, so if you have severe drought throughout, it's not only about the hydroelectric; it's affecting uh, the even the actual production of electricity from uh, coal. Uh, the irony here is, even if you want to depend on nuclear, you need water. We've already seen that two plants in France, basically, they were threatened to be closed because of lack of water. Uh, and if you think that's it for energy, think again. You need it for biofuel. We cannot. This, this is biofuel is something very big for the ESG movement and for the future of uh, low carbon economy and carbon uh, neutral economy, etc. Well, now you cannot have biofuel because you cannot have the plants. Why? Because you have a drought. And we have enough evidence from around the world uh, to show the impact. For example, last year, we had drought in Brazil. Uh, Brazil's transportation, as you all know, depends heavily on biofuel, mostly ethanol that comes from sugarcane. And because of the drought, sugarcane production declined and they couldn't produce as much uh, uh, sugar or uh, ethanol and they had to import ethanol from the United States. Uh, you talk about all the biofuel and the biodiesel and all the other oil that come from Malaysia and Indonesia and other places. Uh, that's all need water. Without water, we are not going to have the biofuel. Uh, and so the idea here is drought is going to kill the green revolution, if you want to call it that way, uh, or the movement toward the green economy, or at least delay it, because you are not going to get the biofuel. And those factories for solar and wind parts, wind turbines, etc., are already closed. So you have serious problems with that. If you think that's all, well, think about it. You cannot even frack for shale to get the shale gas or shale oil without water. So if we have some really severe problems in Texas, guess what's going to happen to oil production and gas production? We are going to have serious problems because of lack of, uh, uh, of water. And there is another problem. People started talking about it this week, which is kind of very uh, interesting problem, and I hope we will not see any impact to it, that there are many pipelines going through rivers and lakes. Uh, and the pipelines uh, are designed in a way where 
the pressure from water is on them. So they are surrounded by water and there is pressure there. And if we have a drought, that's going to change the pressure. And we might end up with some uh, explosions or some pipeline problems because of that. So any way you look at it, the impact of drought on the energy industries and what I mentioned, basically, is just even like really a small part of the bigger issue. Uh, it has impact on every single energy source and it has an impact on supply and has an impact on demand. Back to you. Yeah. So quick follow up. Um, we're publishing a piece tomorrow on Europe and it's a bit provocative. It's got a great title, which is um, Dead of Winter. Um, and we actually mentioned this situation in Norway that you alluded to um, where the dam levels, you know, levels behind the dam are shrinking. And Norway has announced it is going to restrict exports of electricity to broader uh, Europe. Um, if they have to. I wonder whether that move by Norway, caused by the drought that you reference, might not trigger a cascading series of protectionism. Um, and since we've already written that, we suspect it might, uh, and the piece is locked for editing, I hope you agree with me. <laughs> um, you know, everything is possible because uh, once people start dying, I think we are going to see various reactions uh, from governments. And uh, let me uh, remind people here uh, of one point that the former uh, German Chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, was for nuclear. And she won the election uh, in, what, 1999, I think. Uh, she won the election, and one of the platforms, one of her platforms was the return of, or the uh, keeping nuclear uh, as an option for Germany. And two years later, after Fukushima, she changed her mind. And she is the one who shut down the, uh, most of the nuclear reactors in 2011. Uh, and the reason why it looks like Fukushima, because if you look at the dates of the decisions, uh, Fukushima happened. She announced the moratorium and other things uh, three days later. Uh, but what people did not pay attention to was the local elections were four days later and the green who are anti-nuclear were winning. So it was pure political decision. So this flip-flop from the right to the left from Angela Merkel shows you that those governments can flip. I mean, all you get to do, uh, if, you, if you hear stories about people dying from cold because there is not enough gas or heating, I think you are going to see some uh, people switching sides. Wow, and uh, that's, just, that's just extraordinary. Uh, just to reset the room, we're, um, we've got, Dr. Nasser Haji, one of the world's foremost experts on energy, with a real, real tour de force here of, uh, of the energy markets. And Nas, um, <laughs> bad joke attempt coming here, but <laughs> I'm kind of reminded of what uh, Donald Trump famously once said about healthcare. You could say about energy. Nobody, paraphrase <laughs> a line from him. Nobody, nobody knew that energy could be quite, quite so complicated. So I'm learning a lot here, as I'm sure everybody else in the room is as well. I want to now go to uh, one of the smartest guys in the room, Javier, um, who uh, has been a regular um, uh, participant in these Twitter spaces and always has a really insightful take on things energy. So Javier, uh, if you're there, please unmute yourself. The floor is yours. Hey, hey, buddy, how are you? Um, I appreciate the intro, but uh, I, I always defer to the other two gentlemen up here. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a learner as well. I love listening to them. And, and, you know, the only thing I would add to this, because so many of the people that, that listen to these are outside, outside looking in, 
right? They're, they're not daily participants in energy and ag or uh, uh, chemical markets like, like we are. You know, we live this stuff. Um, and, and I think, you know, I've, I've, I've been fairly bearish the, the price of oil over the last uh, probably three or four months. Um, and, and it in one of the things that, that Dr. Nas touched on, and it's one of the things that, that we are trying to model out, and that is going to be protectionism. Um, a lot of the things discussed here are it's all what if. Um, and, and one thing to remember is that WTI and Brent are very generic, very public, very forward facing um, summaries of a global microcosm of, of, of millions of data points a day. And it's, it's thousands of products, thousands of supply and demand sheets, thousands of web where with little tiny pinpricks of breakage points or crack circuit, they can spider glass into large problems. And when you're deploying capital in the space or you're trading in the space or you're managing a large corporate entity in the space, it all matters. And the what if in the energy space is, has become quite dramatic. I, in 25 years, I, I can't really remember a time where, where we've had wars and we've had disruptions and we've had uh, we've had global macro environments where, where things have been challenging. COVID is one of them, but I can't remember one where you have geopolitical uh, weather. I mean, Dr. Anas, his, his point on drought is very underappreciated as a risk metric. I believe across the spectrum, and and it, it makes us wonder and guess about all of these possibilities. Well, you know, the pragmatist says, well, most of these things aren't going to happen, and then I'd like to remind them about what we just went through in 2020 and 2021, where perfect storms seem to be lining up, you know, coming across, uh, uh, coming across, and, and, and pumping hurricanes into these markets. Um, I'm guardedly neutral right here. The price of crude, I believe. Dr. Anas is correct, defending 90. I believe there's catalysts for upside movement, but I don't necessarily they're going to take place over days, weeks. I think this thing is good. I think we have a long term. We, we have a long cycle of many issues that are going to have to be worked through, George. Um, I mean, how many people on this space, if you raised your hand, had ever known what German, French, or Dutch power prices were, or that, or uh, uh, Norway's dependence on, I mean, these are things that, that the normal person has never heard of. And so I think it's great that the attention has been brought to it. I mean, more people uh, send me notes on EIA, on EIA statistics on Wednesdays now, you know, family and friends are all worried about whether we drew or whether we built and what pad three looks like. And are we, you know, or how much propane was exported this month, but, I'd just like to remind people that this is a long-term, this is a long-term issue. Um, the, outside of a cataclysmic macro event, it's, we're guarded to the upside. The tail risk is, is, is higher in many cases, George. That, that's really what I want to add. I really like listening to them talk. I learn something every time. Javier, uh, I think, uh, I mean, focusing on the idea that people are underappreciating certain risks, uh, such as uh, drought, uh, get this one, which is, I think, uh, is very big. But before I go to it, I just want to say the following, that the impact of the drought worldwide might end up way bigger than the impact of sanctions on Russia. Uh, and it, it, it will affect uh, uh, rich people and poor people, etc. And throughout the world, 
in a way that we cannot even imagine right now. But the other, the other unappreciated uh, risk, which is government intervention, since everyone is talking about protectionist policies, government intervention under the guise of national security. And the irony here is, it is against ESG. It's not against fossil fuel. And if you, uh, for example, if you look at the, the metals and minerals needed for the green economy, it's literally uh, shocking. For example, uh, if you look at the graphite uh, that is needed for batteries, China controls 67% of the graphite production uh, in the world. And it is highly concentrated. Uh, so uh, when we talk about concentration, this is an essential part of the Sherman Act and the anti, uh, uh, anti-monopoly laws in the United States. And one of the measures is used is the concentration of the top four. And if you compare the concentration in the top four uh, throughout, uh, when you talk about graphite or lithium or cobalt or nickel or copper, etc., it is almost double the concentration in oil and almost double the concentration in natural gas. So for graphite, for example, I'm talking about production, 67% comes from China and none of the countries in Europe and none in the United States, while we see the ESG policies in Europe and the United States. So from where they are going to get that? If you look at reserves, uh, number one, probably some people will be shocked at this. The number one country in reserves in graphite is Turkey. Erdogan. And number two is China again. So notice that China is appearing in all of those. Uh, Number three is Brazil. Uh, Number four is Madagascar. And number five, Russia. Uh, You go to uh, lithium. Uh, 52% of the lithium is produced in Australia. And uh, if you uh, look at uh, Chile, is about a quarter of the global uh, production, uh, uh, Australia, etc. You see, about ninety something percent uh, is produced by the top uh, by the top four. You look at reserves uh, of lithium. Uh, number one in the world is uh, Chile, and uh, number two is Australia. Number three is Argentina. Number four is China. China appearing again. And one of the things that kind of very strange. If you look at all the minerals that are needed for the green economy, you look at their locations, they are literally at the farthest corners of the globe, while oil and gas are are really in the center, uh, in the center of the globe. Uh, You look at, uh, um, uh, I'm I'm running through this list quickly here. Uh, If you look at cobalt, uh, the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo produces about 51% of the cobalt in the world. Let me point this out, that people who are afraid that the Middle East is really on fire all the time and we have political stability, etc., wait until you see the Democratic Republic of Congo and then talk about the Middle East because that country is a big, big mess. Um, uh, you look at the reserves, number one, uh, uh, that's... Uh, uh, number one is Democratic Republic of Congo. Number two is Australia. 
And number three, here is another one, another surprise. We mentioned earlier uh, Turkey as number one in graphite. Number three in cobalt is Cuba. And uh, number five is Philippines. Uh, uh, sorry, number four is Zambia, and number five is the uh, Philippines. Uh, the, uh, I'm almost done here. Uh, nickel, uh, it's highly concentrated. 37% comes from Indonesia and 14% uh, from the Philippines. And Russia, number three, 10%. Uh, you don't see these, these minerals basically coming from Europe or the United States. There is some in the United States, but not, not that much. And there is objection to that, to developing those mines, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, you look at uh, 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 crude, for example, if you look at crude oil, the percentage of concentration of the top four is only 54%. But the top four include the United States and Canada, while we don't see that in the other uh, uh, minerals. So the idea here is there is this risk of protectionism, risk of government intervention under the guise of national security, that's going to limit the ESG movements and the movement toward the green economy. And that's going to literally, by default, increase the demand for oil, gas, and coal. Back to you. Thanks, Sanas. All right, we've got a tremendous uh, line of uh, questioners here. Uh, we're going to take them in turn. Uh, first, we're going to do Marathon, followed by Gordon, followed by Mark Newman, followed by Gnostic. Marathon, good to see you. Floor is yours. Great, George. Can you hear me okay? 100%. Great. Thanks for having me up. And Dr. Nas, really appreciate your comments today, spot on in both the crude markets and the sort of metals and materials stuff. I wanted to tap into your relatively unique uh, position of kind of a knowledge of the inner workings of OPEC, because I think your comments about the willingness of OPEC to really defend, you know, the 85, 90, $95 a barrel range is really important. And it's one being ignored by folks who are looking at the current economic downturn and looking for a replay of 2008. Um, and I think it goes back to, you know, the defining characteristics of the oil price crashes over the last 40 years has been the fact that OPEC has typically increased production into the economic weakness. You know, they did it back in 1998. They raised production a couple million barrels. They did it in 2007, 2008, uh, and uh, even in 2014 to 2016. And they often left that incremental production into the market for a period of time while the economy was clearly weakening and sort of driving a spike in energy prices, uh, driving a spike down. And it, and it really served their purpose because what they wanted to do, they never really said this, but it seemed like it was very effective at, at uh, discouraging non-OPEC capital investment. You know, you spike oil price down below the cost of incremental uh, or marginal cost of production, you slow down that engine of capital that's going to be adding production over time. It seems like, and maybe this is what you're reading between the lines, uh, is that they don't need to do that anymore. Um, ESG and decarbonization movements and the discouraging uh, and even sort of bastardization of the traditional hydrocarbon sector um, is doing that for them. So they now can be in sort of a revenue maximizing position and uh, and not worry about having to spike the oil price down because they don't need to anymore. So I'm curious if A, you think that's part of the case here and B, if um, what it would take for that to really change. Um, so appreciate your thoughts. 
Uh, great question. Um, when I talked earlier about a change in market structure when China uh, started using the SPR as a tool, as a buyer, uh, let me remind everyone about the two major changes that we've seen in 2021. One of them is China, and we already talked about it. I'm talking about the Chinese behavior in the oil market. But the second one, and I think those are the, really the two most important highlights of 2021, is that for the first time in history, and this is back exactly to the point we're raising, for the first time in history, we've seen the large oil producers in OPEC with spare capacity, respecting the market share of others who are not able to meet their quota. Because historically what happened is every time prices went up and some OPEC members couldn't increase their production to meet their quota, the big guys took their share. And that contributed to the friction within OPEC and contributed to decline in oil prices later on. So we've seen a completely new behavior, which constitute a change in market structure, by the way, uh, from OPEC, that those countries are going to stick to their quota no matter what, and they're going to respect the quota of others. Now in 2022, and, and I know most of you are going to hear this for the first time, so mark this. In 2022, for the first time in history, We've seen OPEC, what I call OPEC three-leg policy. And this is going to be a very impactful policy that constitutes another ch uh, change in market structure. What is the OPEC plus three-leg market policy? The first one is when OPEC meets and they announce uh, uh, production or whatever that production is. And then after that, we end up with Aramco OSP. That's official selling price. The three legs basically are, the first one is OPEC meeting, whatever comes out of that. The second one is the Saudi OSP and other countries will follow with their official uh, selling prices like Kuwait and Iraq and the UAE. Uh, and Iran. And then after that, we have the actual difference between supply and production. If you really want to understand how the physical market is going to operate, you cannot separate those three legs from each other. This is very important for the analysis of the oil market. Why? Because they can decide to increase production, but they can nullify that by increasing the OSP. Because when they increase the OSP, there will be no demand, and therefore there is no reason to increase the production. They already decided. And whatever the case is, we have to wait and monitor the production and shipments to see what is the actual behavior on the ground because they are limited by OPEC quota in terms of production, but they can play with supply. Supply is different from production. For example, they could have, uh, they may, might have uh, oil in storage. They can supply that and that's not subject to OPEC quota. So they can increase production. Or they can literally produce and not export and put that oil in storage. That change in supply. 
And what we can see from this uh, uh, from this policy is that since their uh, consumption of oil increases uh, markedly in the summer because of the heat and the demand for cooling, um, by the end of the summer, they don't need that anymore. So they either can go for maintenance and reduce production, or they can literally divert that from domestic consumption to exports. And by doing so, they are changing supply, but they are not changing production. So that's what the OPEC plus three-leg policy is, the decision of OPEC, the OSP, and then the actual uh, uh, supply and the difference between supply and, uh, and production. Back to you. That's that's the boy. That's really getting in the weeds. Thank you, Ernest. That's that's just phenomenal. Okay, we're going to do um, Gordon and then uh, Mark Newman. Gordon, the floor is yours. Please. Hey, George. Thanks for the question, Anas. Great stuff. Um, I just had a broader question, uh, Anas, on uh, climate change and the approach that the world is taking. Um, I'm reading this book, False Alarm, and there's a lot of good points made in the book. But one of the main points he makes is that. You know, one of the key arguments that is made by the EIA and other um, energy organizations is that solar is the cheapest form of energy. Uh, but there's a caveat to that, um, that it's the cheapest form of energy at a certain time of day uh, when the sun is out. It's not clearly when when the sun is down. And then there's also arguments that you know climate change is going to bring about rising sea levels. But a point he makes in the book is that due to money spent to fight you know, things like rising sea levels, hurricanes, et cetera, people becoming richer. If you think about the Netherlands, they spent 10 billion. It's actually underwater right now, but they've been just fine. Um, and his point is that instead of spending money on things that don't really work, like EVs and solar, the world and we should be spending things on uh, money on things that do work, like remediation of things like hurricanes, et cetera. Have you thought about that? Um, is that something that you think is important? Is that something that you think global leaders are thinking about? Thank you. From my point of view, um, the the failure of some of those policies mean by default uh, increase in demand for oil, gas, and coal. And that's not being counted anywhere, and therefore we are going to head for energy crisis. So regardless, because these issues are debatable and, you know, et cetera, I'm, I usually, my view is, uh, I don't want to get into those debates. What I know is the following, that we have very high pollution in our big cities, and that must be reduced. I have no problem converting all the fleet in downtown to electric, regardless where that electricity comes from, whether coal or anything else. But the downtown is cleaner, and that makes sense. So cleaning up the cities, basically, regardless of the source of energy, uh, is the pr priority in my view relative to all those meetings and negotiations, et cetera, et cetera. We know that this pollution in the cities is really harming a lot of people and we can do a lot of things to do it. So the idea here is, tell me you are buying electric vehicle because you want to clean uh, the area around your house and around your neighborhood, but don't mention the word climate change because it does not make sense for some people. But if you tell people, look, I really want the downtown to be clean, everyone is going to believe you and people will support you. And it's incredible because we've seen some downtowns around the world that's being cleaned up. And you can see the sky before you couldn't see the sky. 
So it, this approach basically makes uh, uh, better, uh, better sense. The other issue I would like to raise here, since you raised the issue of solar, uh, there is a big misunderstanding uh, about the news when we hear that this is record low. They signed a contract for one cent and a half, and the other is like two cents, etc. What people do not realize in those is that all those contracts are not the same. So uh, here in the United States, uh, you have to rent the land or buy it, for example, uh, and there is a price for that. Well, you go to uh, uh, countries like in the Gulf nations, it's desert and there is no price for it, period. Uh, so it's not apples to apples. It's not oranges to oranges. And the other thing is uh, the government or the power company is paying for all the connections and all those uh, copper lines and all that, which is extremely expensive. Uh, they are paying for that, while in other places they are already too close and there is no problem at all. So the comparison when it comes to solar uh, is not apples to apples, and that's a really a serious problem. Uh, when it comes to those prices that are advertised by the media. Back to you, George. Thanks, Anas. Uh, we now go to uh, my good friend Mark Newman, and then he'll be followed by Dr. Sarah. So, Mark, good to see you. What's up? Hey, George. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hey, Gordon, I just want to let you know there's a great, great book that just came out by Alex Epstein, Fossil Future. And it's... Uh, Amazing. It talks a lot about the things you're discussing there and you read about, but um, I highly recommend it. So I just wanted to connect a few dots here, do a little mosaic theory. And I want to touch on what Javier said earlier about people sort of all of a sudden waking up and not waking up, but really being alerted to energy prices in Europe, let's say. And it rang true to me from last Friday when Doomberg mentioned Bangladesh and I, look, I, I lived in Japan for seven years. I traded a lot of products around many, many exchanges around the world. So I consider myself, you know, pretty aware of things and, and, and uh, you know, on a global basis. But I think Javier brings a great point. I mean, if I said to people a year and a half ago, watch Sri Lanka, it's going to matter in the globe. People would be like, what are you talking about? But I think it's really important. And I uh, thankfully had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Uh, Ahaji a little earlier and he and I were discussing sort of national security issues and interest masked as something else. And look, at the end of the day, U.S. nuclear, U.S. submarines run on nuclear and the U.S. military probably I don't know the numbers, but the Hummers and the tanks and these kinds of the planes, they all still run on what's probably fossil fuel. Right. So they, I find it really interesting that they're telling everybody that's not stuff for you but they need it as a national security interest. So I kind of liken it to, uh, you know, Dr. Alhaji hit on it earlier. It's sort of an ESG thing on some level, clearly, but it's all gone a bit supranational now. And uh, uh, Dr. Alhaji mentioned, you know, cobalt in Cuba. I hadn't really thought of that. That's above my pay grade, but we're heading into a period where the hard materials, fossil fuel, nuclear as well, but materials, minerals, Rare, mineral, rare earth minerals are becoming super important for everybody. And I would love to hear, you know, Dr. Haji or, or Doomberg talk about the sort of masking of all this stuff as we're going to need this hard stuff to make our sort of societies run. And the national security interest, <clears throat> excuse me, it points to me to this sort of sovereign bubble that we're in. Right. And you can start at the debt levels. Right. Debts are uh, debt levels around the world are just unsustainable. 
But then now everyone's clutching and grabbing for for the minerals, for the fossil fuel, for the nuclear energy and trying to solve it when I kind of wonder where is it going in terms of commodities and fossil fuel in terms of national interest and and, and supranational battles. It doesn't feel like we're headed to a good period in that regard. And I wondered if someone wanted to connect the Uh, dots a little further there. Mark, I, I would like to add one more point to what you said. Because uh, the Biden administration uh, is aware of this national security issue, and therefore they decided, okay, we are going to produce our own lithium, and we are going to do this, and we are going to do this, etc., which is which is good. But the problem is, once you start doing this, the costs go through the roof. And uh, uh, since uh, Gordon earlier talked about the, uh, I think it was Gordon who talked about the, uh, or Javier, about the uh, unappreciated risks. The problem is once you move this to Europe and the United States, the cost goes up, that's fine. But there are other risks there because you have all the environmental regulations risks, which is government intervention, and the unappreciated risks even in the oil and gas sector is labor strikes. We have more interruption uh, in in the oil and gas business in the democratic countries more than the uh, countries with dictators. Of course, don't understand me here as I'm supporting dictatorship. No, but I just want to point out that uh, the the we have more disruptions. Simply, one of them uh, is the labor strikes, and the idea is when oil prices go up and natural gas prices go up and workers see the companies and the CEO and others making a lot of money while they are not getting any piece of the pie, they will go on strike. Uh, and and uh, this is the argument for, uh, uh, I mean, we've seen this uh, from some Canadian politicians who were arguing uh, by uh, Canadian uh, oil and gas because we have democracy and stable. Well, that's the data is absolutely against it. It was Canada that curtailed production. It was Alberta that curtailed production. We uh, and and uh, banned it. Uh, it was uh, Alberta where we have major fires. Well, it's Alberta where we have labor strikes. So this is not to be taken against Canadian oil. I think the uh, the best investments today are still in, in Alberta. Uh, and uh, uh, for those, uh, this is not an investment advice, but uh, uh, the uh, Alberta oil companies are still uh, really viable. Uh, but the idea here is. Those politicians who do not understand the issues by bragging about Canada or others being democratic and stable, they don't understand the nature of the business. And that's a big problem. Back to you, George. Thanks. So, um, Mark, Thanks. the only thing I, I would add, um, George, if you let me. No, go ahead, go ahead. It is one of the things that we're talking, dancing around here, uh, this issue that has not yet been spoken to specifically. Um, during periods of relative energy abundance, where um, Oil and gas companies in particular have overinvested in supply and prices are depressed. Um, you can paper over a lot of stupidity and a lot of um, mistakes because you have abundant energy. So it's cheap to run mines. It's, it's cheap to you know, um, waste energy. Uh, we're not in such a period today. Uh, relative to anticipated demand with the emerging middle class and the recovery from COVID, uh, we're in a period of chronic energy shortage, um, not you know the damage from the abrupt COVID lockdown, um, the um, the renewed uh, you know, discipline around shareholder remediation, uh, remuneration uh, in the shale patch, 
um, and so on. And so we're in a, in a space now, which is just a totally different paradigm, which is energy is short. And when energy is short, every little hiccup, uh, every little butterfly flapping its wings has the potential to become a hurricane um, because the intensity of demand. And um, now and for the next several years, in part because of the defund uh, fossil fuels ESG movement, in part because of the abrupt nature of the shutdown and the damage that did to the marginal producer um, in the shale patch and the fact that many of these companies went through a court-supervised reorganization and emerged from bankruptcy um, with a newfound respect for cash flow as, uh, as opposed to growth, um, we're in a period of chronic energy shortage. So every train derailment, um, every explosion at LG export facility, if we were in a period of relative global energy abundance, the explosion that happened in Freeport would not have made the local news, let alone global headlines. Um, and so that's the one thing that I would uh, want to point out that has been missed so far. Uh, we are in a period of chronic energy shortage. And when you're in such a period, um, every burp, every butterfly flapping of its wings uh, could become a hurricane. Back to you, George. Doomberg, that's terrific. Thanks for that. Okay, let's go to Dr. Sarah. And after Dr. Sarah, we're going to Gnostic. Dr. Sarah, please unmute yourself. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to the organizers, hosts, and especially Dr. Al-Haji. Uh, Dr. Al-Haji made a very important point about uh, where most of the uh, strategic minerals are uh, uh, located, especially Africa. I just wanted to add a very quick note to that, and that's um, uh, the China's control over both extraction and also processing the minerals in, um, in both Africa and also Latin America is even uh, increasing further uh, because um, it's not just the location and geography, but who is extracting these minerals, who has controls over mines, and where are mostly processed. And because the environmental regulations, uh, investment, all those issues, China is really leading in processing and extracting in mineral, uh, these minerals in Africa and Latin America. And as of we're speaking now, the Biden administration has sent a message to most of African countries. I don't know if this has been the news or not. We know that through our network in Africa, they send a message to them, the Treasury Department, that if they don't stop purchasing grain uh, from Russia or stop their trades with Russia, they're going to soon be subject to sanctions and they have to start reducing their relation with Russia. And this is happening at the time that we are talking about food security, drought, uh, the, the, the whole energy, global, energy and global uh, economy crisis. These countries are hungry. And U.S. do not, and U.S. investments do not match Chinese investment in this area, let, uh, let alone U.S. aid. And at the same time that the African countries heard the same message, this message from U.S. countries, uh, from U.S. Uh, government, I don't know if anyone paid attention or not. China uh, forgave um, about 23 loans for 17 African countries. Obviously, that's not a free. Uh, for giving the lane, uh, loans uh, to these countries, but we see that how um, U.S. government is creating more challenge for U.S. companies and investment to go to Africa or non-U.S. and European and creates that gap for China in both Latin American countries like Cuba that uh, Dr. Al-Haji mentioned or African countries. Namibia is top 11 uh, in top 10 uh, uranium producers. 
top mines are controlled, extracted by China, most of that processed in Russia. So uh, the way that we are working um, in Africa and uh, Latin America, U.S. policies through the sanctions is creating a huge gap. Uh, and it's just it's just very uh, scary for me myself. And I, I never talked about this anywhere. It's just like listening to Dr. Al-Haji and talk to mention this. It's just really scary that how African countries every day are getting closer and closer to uh, to uh, to Chinese and many of their ministers mentioned that they have been mentioning like Minister of South Sudan said U.S. is a good friend for us. We love to have U.S. investment, but we never hear anything from U.S. Um, China that every day knocks our door and say, what do you want? Other countries in Africa, South Africa, Namibia, different countries in sub-Saharan Africa. It's very sad, and I don't know where that's come from. This is the U.S. diplomatic corp that they should investigate why they are feeling like that. But they always say that China treats us like human. Well, I don't know really the political dynamics in these countries, and I'm not talking about that, but I'm just looking at how U.S. policies... It's Dr. Sarah, Dr. Sarah, Dr. Sarah yeah. sorry to sure, interrupt. Sure. Dr. Sarah, is there a question, please, for Dr. Alhaji? Yes, I just... Uh, yeah, I just wanted if uh, ask Dr. Al Haji if he how how does he see this uh, like wh where what how this would change or if it would change at all. Sorry if uh, I went very long. Uh, thank you, Dr. Sarah. Uh, Dr. Sarah is uh, uh, an expert in the energy markets and especially on the Middle East and Iran, uh, but she uh, has uh, another trait that's a hidden trait. She is a perfume maker. Uh, and, and it's just that that's amazing. Um, the issue here is uh, when we, when we look at energy security worldwide, uh, China affected energy security because of its demand for oil and gas in recent years. But on the other side, it did help big time because its companies went to places where Western companies do not want to go. So there was a tremendous positive impact uh, of uh, those Chinese companies by going to places where the West do not want to go. And the, one, of the, one of the big stories, I'm not going to hear, but it's an important story, uh, how the Chinese ended up in Sudan, which is now right now, of course, South Sudan. Uh, they ended up because uh, of uh, the Christian right in the United States and the government kept pushing U.S. companies, Canadian companies, uh, uh, of the cliff until they decided to leave and they sold their assets to the Chinese. So we did not lose the oil because they did not shut down the oil. The Chinese came in and expanded. So they contributed to the uh, global security. The same thing applies to all type of minerals and mining, etc., etc. But of course, uh, the same situation with Germany, uh, uh, Germany's dependence on Russian gas over the years, uh, it just by default, it happened and they ended up over 20 to 30 year period, depending on Russia. And we ended up with the current crisis. The same thing is happening with with the minerals that we talked about earlier. And the one you mentioned that by default, the Chinese ended up controlling those minerals in Africa and shipping them to China where they process them there. No one paid attention to this in the last 15, 20 years. The same exact story between uh, Germany and Russia over gas. Back to you, George.
Thanks. Hey, for that. Uh, Thanks. hey real, real quick, George, I want to I want to just chime in here. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too deep, but uh, Dr. Sarah, a lot of what you're talking about is overt what I've liked to coin debt colonization by China and in their quest to shore up their their resource security. But some of it is even not just Africa and South America. Um, in Nevada, there's a lithium lithium uh, mine that's closed called Thacker Pass. It's owned by a company called Lithium Americas Corp. Lithium Americas Corp, if you pull them up on Bloomberg and check out their largest shareholders, their largest shareholders are Chinese. Um, just, your point is that it's, it's, it's more than just there. It's, it's everywhere. Th thanks for that, Javier. Okay, well, let's go to uh, uh, Gnostic and then Gnostic, my friend. friend floor is yours. Oh, boy. Uh, George, you've got a tremendous panel up here, and most of the issues that and questions I was going to ask have already been asked, uh, which I find amazing. That's why I went back down to listen. Um, I, I follow, because of what I do, I follow China on an ongoing basis and have for many years. Um, the Sudan, I think Dr. Kanash and I have had discussions about that previously. And the, the investors, the companies that were going to do oil in Sudan were literally chased out uh, and they were chased out of financings from every country they entered into. Uh, and this was an effort by the State Department in the United States to sit down and chase them out of every country until finally the Chinese came in uh, and took it over. Uh, and it was a shame. The difficulty with that is the Chinese didn't maintain the, the wells and were eventually kicked out by the Sudanese. And several other companies have now been asked to come in. But the wars that are going on are, are difficult. Um, China, 25 years ago, put out a policy on rare earths uh, that nobody listened to, nobody translated. We finally pulled it down, had a look at it, uh, and translated it. And what it basically said is, we will produce rare earths really cheaply uh, and really expensively and sell it to the rest of the world as long as we don't need it personally and we can raise um, capital on an ongoing basis by doing this and capitalize our own country. And when we finish doing that, then we will restrict the export of rare earths. But this is noticed to the rest of the world to make the effort to sit down and find your own rare earths and sit down and, and get them ready. And there's rare earths all over the place. Rare earths are not, are not the primary problem. It simply takes a period of time uh, to sit down and bring up the mines and get them, them working. Cobalt, on the other hand, uh, is a very different situation because there are very few places, um, uh, the, the countries named in Africa, Cuba, there's another country that wasn't mentioned uh, in Northern Africa that has two very valuable cobalt mines and there's some other ones floating around. So again, when China goes in and starts doing what it's doing in places where product is not spread throughout, throughout the world, this becomes an even bigger problem. Uh, Dr. Sarah, you could probably answer this one. Our information is that the Chinese that went in and started working with Iran to work on our Iranian wells didn't basically maintain those wells and created problems and have gone out simply those wells have gone out of production subsequent to that which has created problems but china, china and, and this comes back to some of the topic here and what dr anas was doing dr uh, sorry george um you should have a doctorate degree for some of the stuff you do anyway the, the chinese have for many years politically planned to go into these areas and sit down and do it and javier was was completely right when he sits down and says it's it's financial colonialism in the sense of putting it in, because then you do exactly what the states has done for many years, put the money in, do the investment, force the, the assignment of 
companies to different things, uh, to Chinese companies or American companies as the development goes. And then when you're finished, you move out of the country and the country is basically left to try and survive on its own, which is a problem. But Dr. Nas, my question comes back to you in this process of China planning long-term to sit down and do things and go into these countries, uh, both for minerals, minerals oil, all, all the rest of the stuff. I, I have, well, it, it scares me tremendously. I have huge admiration for the Chinese planning in such an advanced state uh, to sit down and go and do this. But Dr. Nas, do you think this creates a retribution uh, in the total supply demand curves around the world, which create panics followed by non-panics and, and supply increases? And how do you feel this affects not, not just oil, but also the, the minerals that are in it uh, over some periods of time and cycling up and down? and creates political distortions. Uh, do you think these are will smooth out over time or will they continue to exacerbate and get worse and worse? Um, I don't know. I have no answer to this exact question, but your discussion and uh, what Sarah mentioned reminded me of, uh, this was in the news recently, that uh, part of the, uh, uh, when the Chinese or Chinese uh, leadership was visiting Africa, uh, there was a decision to return 7,000 African students to China after COVID. 7,000. Uh, of course, this is the number of foreign students in China is not as big as the number of foreign students in uh, in the United States. But probably we should compare this to the number of students uh, or foreign students in the United States probably in 1955. Uh, and and so the the issues are deeper than just investment, uh, because they are bringing a lot of those students from Africa to be trained in uh, in China, in Chinese universities, and send them back uh, to work for the Chinese companies or for the governments, uh, for their uh, home governments. And probably they will be literally kind of Chinese agents. So the issues are really deeper than just uh, commerce. I, I can add a little bit too here, uh, Dr. Nas, if you don't mind. Um, so uh, the cheap way to learn a lot about what the Chinese are up to is to read John Perkins' excellent book, um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which really tells the story of how America was doing what Chi the, the Chinese are now doing you know, uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, the expensive and much better way to find out is to subscribe to Grant Williams' Gold Tier, where John Perkins was um, interviewed uh, for three spectacular hours, really just amazing uh, cinematography and, and really intellectual depth, uh, where they dive deeper into what China is doing and the lessons they learned probably from reading his book. Um, China is simply replicating um, the same sort of foreign debt strategy, extra uh, resources um, that the U.S. did several decades ago. Um, and now, since we're sort of distracted and we don't play such uh, geopolitical games as effectively as we once did, um, China's kind of eaten our lunch uh, in this regard, which gets to what you know Dr. Sarah was referring to earlier. So, John Perkins' book for twenty bucks uh, on Amazon, or uh, twenty four hundred bucks a year for Grant Williams' Gold Tier. Uh, either way, you'll learn a lot. That's great, Thunberg. Uh, Marathon, did you have a quick follow up? Because then I want to go to KFEB. Uh, I did actually. Just uh, I've got a few seconds in a response to what Mark Newman was talking about earlier. Uh, in the sort of invoking of the Defense Production Act, where I think the administration paid some lip service to trying to encourage the production of some of these rare materials and metals domestically. 
Um, that is all well and good uh, until you come up against state and local governments. There are three projects held up currently in Nevada. Two are lithium. Uh, one's geothermal, so smack dab in the middle of the Green Revolution that are all being held up for various reasons. Uh, I think rare mice and injured owls and, and, and things such as that. So I think the, the conversation has to be much deeper and much more nuanced. But, uh, you know, when the rubber hits the road, there is still, I guess, for lack of a better word, a jihad against extractive industries of all kinds in the Western world. Uh, that's just going to make it really hard for us to become self-sufficient in any of these materials. So that's all I got. Thanks, Marathon. KFAB, my friend, floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Thanks, George. Um, as you know, George, I kind of live in the tales, and I, I, I uh, understand and appreciate the comments from Doomberg and uh, Anas on the right tail as far as energy and energy prices. My question relates specifically to the left tail, and I put a, a tweet up in the nest from Jeremy McCree from June from Raymond James. And I, I want to push back on the concept of the inelasticity of, of oil, because um, that is obviously the history. Uh, but the one kind of, you know, outlier period just happened to yeah. have a synchronized global recession in the early 80s when oil demand went down four years in a row uh, for a total of about 10%. Um, so indulge me. Uh, include I like Javier's input on this too. You know, con conceptually, or if you do model these types of things, if we saw a four to six percent decline in demand due to a severe synchronized global recession over the next two years, what does that look like? Um, I, I get all the structural arguments. On, on I agree with those. Uh, it's more of the cyclical stress testing on the left tail that I'm thinking about. So to, to be extraordinarily clear. Inelasticity works both ways, uh, which is why we go from um, minus $37 a barrel to 130 in the span of 18 months um, and, uh, on relatively small swings in supply and demand. Um, if you actually looked at the chart of oil consumed over that time period, um, if you if you you know draw it from zero to you know 110 million barrels a day, that it's a pretty small squiggly line that massive swing. So 100%, a you know, collapse of uh, the European economy as a consequence of their bundling of their energy policy leads to a, a global um, a recession um, and, and crush. And then, you know, um, there's some, um, perhaps uh, President Xi's, uh, um, you know, ascension to the permanent throne of China is disrupted and, and there's chaos in China. Like it, the, the supply demand balances in um, inelastic commodities like energy are violent and bi-directional. So I, I don't want anyone to think uh, that when we say um, inelasticity of demand, we think uh, shortages means prices go up uh, because uh, excess means prices go down just as violently. Um, and so, yeah, this should be 100% clear. I totally agree. And um, we've lived through uh, many such cycles uh, in our career. Uh, uh, and when you're in the commodity industry, you know that you're making all your money in three, three years over a decade. I'm glad you said that because I think there's definitely a strong um, directional um, bias amongst the the kind of energy bull, uh, let's call it, you know, culture, um, and and don't appreciate that point that you just made. So that's why I just I, I like to keep bringing it up. I'll go one step further. Um, 
people confuse Doomberg uh, warning about energy shortages as, as Doomberg hoping for high energy prices. Uh, we have no investments in the space. Um, we, we would much prefer far lower oil prices because that means uh, an abundance of, of life uh, for humans around the world. Um, we take no joy when our warnings are proven right. Um, the piece we're putting out tomorrow um, predicting how um, European politicians will take the worst uh, choice given every opportunity in the next few months is not one that we're happy to write. And uh, nobody would be happier to be proven wrong than we are. Um, $100 oil uh, is not good um, for the standard of living of the median human on planet Earth. Um, so um, if, uh, the, you know, the collapse of um, German electricity prices from their unbelievable high of 1,000 euros per megawatt hour down to somewhere around 500 um, is, is being put in our feed as though we have somehow been wrong or that this is bad. Um, we would like... Uh, European energy prices uh, and electricity prices to go back to historical averages. Um, we are pro-human. I love Europe. I love Europe. I've been to Europe dozens of times. No hundreds of Europeans. I wish them no ill will. Um, we take no joy in um, foreseeing problems and then seeing them realized. We'd much rather be called um, alarmists uh, and, and haven't been proving wrong. So anyway, that's just something I needed to say because of some uh, shit yeah, that we've me, been getting uh, on Twitter. But uh, yeah, so go ahead, Dr. Nas. Uh, let me clarify one point, because this is kind of really an important point. When we talk about price elasticity of demand for oil, we are talking about the relationship between the price and the quantity demanded, assuming everything else is constant. This assumption is usually forgotten when we talk about the elasticity. This is very important. At the same time, we have the income elasticity of demand, and sometimes they go in the same direction, and sometimes they go in the opposite direction. So it causes it, they cause confusion in the market for those who are looking at those elasticities. The final point, uh, this was my own research showing that the literature on elasticity of demand in the oil market for the last 45 years is flawed. And one of the reasons why it's flawed, uh, simply because they, uh, I know Kayfabe uh, mentioned the uh, structural changes. We have some major structural changes in the 80s that has nothing to do with the elasticity, simply because of the increase in prices in the 70s that led to changes of the production line in the factories where, and we changed the whole uh, power system, we moved away from oil. Uh, to other sources. So these are structural changes. But the point here is, if you want to talk about elasticity of demand, talk about it in terms of ranges, not as price for quantity, price for quantity, which means that, let's talk, for example, about gasoline. If gasoline prices go from 275 to 295, the impact here is zero. And if you measure the elasticity, there is no reaction. But you go from 275 to 310, and you see the change. So if you look at it in terms of ranges, it makes more sense than to look at it in absolute numbers. Back to you. Thanks, Anas. So, Doomberg, I have one, um, one more question. I'd like to wrap this room up in the next five minutes or so, unless you want to keep posting it. Um, no, that's fine. Okay, so, Anas, uh, my final question for you hmm. The only one I have in my head right now might be another one. But could you please speak to um, the impact of any uh, potential Iran deal? 
candidate Biden uh, promised us a deal the moment he gets into the office, and he was not able to get a deal until now. And there are many reasons for that. And one of the main reasons, which was apparent from day one, is that no one is going to enter a deal only to for the next president to nullify it. So why go for a deal? Uh, so that part was part of the uh, problem. The other part of the problem is, and, and this is kind of sounds cynical, the only way for the Biden administration to keep the Iranians on the table is to turn the blind eye to sanctions. But if they are getting everything out, uh, out there and selling everything with the sanctions, why sit on the table? So I know this sounds cynical, but that's one of the facts. One of the problems we encountered since Russia went into Ukraine is that uh, we, we almost had a deal in, in, uh, in February. But uh, when the Russians went to Ukraine and everyone was busy with Ukraine, they came back to negotiate in March and the sanctions were imposed on Russia and the Russians stopped the deal. And the reason they're for it all along. And the reason why, because they found out that Russian sanctions apply on Russia toward Iran. And Russia, of course, has major interests in, in Iran. So why go for a deal that's going to restrict Russia? Uh, so th that's part of the problem. Now, the main question everyone asks about is what will happen to the oil market if we have a deal? First of all, all the Iranian oil that, they, that can be exported is out there which means that if they sign a deal today, it's not going to have an impact in the short run. But in the medium and long run, they can add probably about 1 to 1.5 million barrels a day within 16 months. Uh, this is not a big deal. But if you, uh, uh, and that's strange enough to, to kind of realize what the media is doing, we had all kinds of media reports talking about this 93 million barrels of floating storage. This is the global floating stock of Iranian oil. It's not necessarily even owned by Iran because they were talking about uh, China bonded storage or Singapore, etc. It's not necessarily owned by Iran at all, but the source of it is Iran. What Iran has today is about 45 million barrels in, in uh, um, floating storage. Most of that is condensates. So it's not crude. And it is there simply because there is not a big market for it because they already sold large quantities of that anyway. Uh, so anyway, you look at it, even if that's true oil with API below 45, uh, the, the amount is small. Think about it as just an additional uh, SPR being released. And that's it. We've seen this before. And the impact, we are going to see knee-jerk reaction from the uh, futures market for a few days. And that's it. Back to you. Well, Anas, I have to, I can't thank you enough. This has just been incredible. I'd like to point out that we've had uh, over 1,500 people in this room at any one time. So this has been an extraordinarily well attended uh, session. I'm sure there'll be enormous number of replays. Uh, but I can't thank you enough um, for your insights. Uh, we, 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 we salute you. I hope you'll consider coming back again in the future. Um, you, the, 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 the investment, investment investors out there are far better 
for hearing your voice. Uh, we need we need more folks like yourself. So, in Doomberg, I want to thank you for hosting this. This has been great. I urge everyone uh, to follow Doomberg, following us. Javier, I always love hearing you talk. KFAB, uh, Cantor, you came up here late, so otherwise we would have gotten you in here. But Newman, Marathon, everybody, this has been an awesome room. Thanks to all of you. We'll uh, do this again before too long, and this has been a tremendous, tremendous session. So, good night, everyone. Take care. Be safe. Thanks, George. Thank you. Take care. Bye.